Good morning, everyone. It is just so awesome being here. I, I really love coming to this assembly. And uh, just to see the variety of ages, uh, the young and the old, these little guys. I, I love to see the elders working together. I just feel so encouraged whenever I come here. And, uh, and thank you for inviting us and having us be with you and share in the, the privilege of being here. Now, are we, uh, we are showing. Good. Very good. Now, uh, some of you have already heard this morning that I do have a subject on my mind that I hope will be of an encouragement to you. I know that there are believers, uh, some in this assembly, who are going through deep waters. You're going through challenges in your faith. And you're asking, why have these things happened? And how do I handle them? How do I come to grips with some of these things? There are some here who are going through difficulties that perhaps have been concealed from everyone else. And they're just a secret, a problem that they bear quietly by themselves. And today we want you to understand that those problems are known by the Lord. And he does have a purpose and he does have a plan. And this morning we would love to just be able to encourage you uh, from his word. And we trust that God's spirit will be behind this message and touching your heart and encouraging you in these things. Now, we're going to talk about this subject, coming to grips with suffering. And we have to face right away the fact that in the world that does not know God and doesn't want to know God, this is one of the greatest objections to having to come and follow the Lord and, and, and believing in this God. And the objection is this. If God is all-powerful and loving, why is there suffering in the world? Have you ever heard that before as an objection? I don't want to trust your God. You talk about a loving God who loves people. If he's really all that loving, why has he allowed all this suffering that we see in the world? I can't possibly believe in a God like that. That's often the objection that comes to us, isn't it? Now, I want to come to grips with some of these things, but we're going to look at a couple of verses. And I want to make known just at the beginning of this message this morning, I'm going to go through a pile of verses. I'm going to read them rather quickly. And I don't want you to take time to jot down notes and things like that. I, I, this is going to be in PowerPoint. I will make it available to you. And you can have it at home in your own computer on your, on your own phone, whatever, and you can go through these things yourself. So I just want you to, to sit back and enjoy the Word of God as it, as, it, as it is read and as you understand some of these things. So the verses that we're going to look at to start off with are, are might be a little bit strange for us just to see the correlation. But these are the verses. Let's just look at them. There's just two of them for starters, and it's this. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison. And the strange thing when it comes to coming to grips with suffering is that there is a strong correlation with the idea of being thankful 
and suffering. Have you ever noticed that some people who seem to be going through the most difficult challenges in life seem to be some of the most happiest people you've ever seen? Now, how does that, where does that come from? How do we understand that? How do we come to grips with suffering? Now, this morning, just for a moment, I want us just to examine our hearts before the Lord. When it comes to this idea of uh, thanksgiving, I think there's probably about four types of individuals in the world today. And there's four different levels. And I want you, as we go through these different levels, I want you to think, what type of person am I? Now, the first type of person is somebody like this, constantly complaining. Do you know anybody like that? You know, I was thinking of a, of a story of an, of an older couple. They've been married for many, many years. And the guy was a grump. There was just no pleasing him. And his wife tried so hard to make him happy and please him and do what he enjoyed. One Saturday morning, she was determined to make a breakfast for him that he would never, ever complain about. So she got up Saturday morning and says, uh, darling, what would you like for breakfast? And uh, he says, well, I want, uh, I want bacon and eggs. I want two eggs. I want one sunny side up and I want the other one scrambled. I want uh, coffee with one sugar and one cream. I want a glass of orange juice. I want two pieces of toast, one dry and one with butter. And she goes away, sure, honey, that's fine, I'll, I'll do that for you. So she makes a breakfast, they're sitting at the table, and uh, he's getting into his breakfast, and uh, she notices he's not very happy. Everything was to order. And she says, darling, what, what, what's, what's the problem? You've scrambled the wrong egg. You know, that's just what some people are like, aren't they? You, there's nothing that can happen that will make them happy. There's always something that they're going to complain about. Then we have folks like this, simple ingratitude. And this would probably uh, cover many people in the world today. These are the sorts of people that take for granted their jobs. They take for granted the country that they live in, where there's peace and safety. They take for granted their wives, their husbands, their children, their, the fact that they have a home, that they have, uh, they're not living on the street. They take these things for granted. They take for granted every day they sit down to a meal and they don't bother really to give thanks to God for it. They just tie into it. Now that's probably like most people in the world. Then we have this third group, and this probably would cover most of us. We're obviously grateful for things that we have. We, most times, we bow our heads before a meal and give thanks to God. We're thankful in our heart for when we see a guy who's uh, blind going down the street, you sort of lift up your heart to God and say, oh, thank you, Lord, I've got my, my vision, you know? We, we have that sort of a, an attitude of gratitude for the most part. But then there's the fourth group, and this is who we should be aspiring for. And it is being able to give thanks always. Always. Now, 
This morning, we're going to break our message up into two sections. And the first section, we're going to talk about the duration of Thanksgiving. And uh, the second part, we're going to talk about the dimensions of Thanksgiving. Now, how do, we, how do we get that? Now, this is where we're going with this. First of all, the duration of Thanksgiving. In other words, when we talk about that, we're asking the question, when and how often am I to be thankful? Okay? Now, I don't know if you paid attention to the verses that we read this morning, but the verse is very clear and telling us when and where uh, we should be thankful. Giving thanks, and what's the word? Always. So there's never a time that we should not be thankful. Now, uh, that's okay. Now, what about this other idea of the dimensions of thanksgiving? This is where things start to get a little bit more challenging, a little bit more difficult. For what things are we to be thankful for? Well, our verse again says, giving thanks always. And the verse, what does it say? For all things. Now, that, that, that's pretty hard, isn't it? Remember who wrote this and where he was? And he was thankful? How do you do that? How do you give thanks for all things? So we must be thankful for the simple things of life and uh, you know, you, you, sometimes we grumble about having to wash. Well, I'm, I don't wash dishes. My wife does. But some people, some people who grumble about washing dishes, you know, you can be thankful that uh, you've actually had dirty dishes to wash because there are many people in the world who, who haven't had food to dirty a dish. They don't even have a dish uh, to be thankful for. So we must be thankful for the simple things. But we must thank God for the troubles and the hardships that come into our life. Now, that is the biggest challenge of all, isn't it? Now, I get encouraged when I look in the faces of some of you folks here because I know some of the difficulties that you're going through. And you have displayed something that's just fantastic. So we're going to look at these things, coming to grips with suffering, how to, be, how to thank God for troubles and hardships. So what I'm going to do, first of all, is we're going to sort of lay a foundation here for you. I'm going to give you some reasons why troubles enter into the life of a Christian. And we're just going to quickly just go over this foundation. I'm going to lay this foundation for you, and then we're going to try and unpack it and make it practical for us. So number one, uh, the first thing that we might, must understand when it comes to difficulties that come into a Christian's life, when you go through a challenge, when you go through a problem in your life, I want you to ask yourself, why is this happening? And I know you do ask that question. And one time, sometimes the very first reason why a difficulty might be entering into your life is because trouble may correct us. That's the first reason. Trouble may correct us. Now, we do have a verse, Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Hebrews chapter 12 is another one. It has to do with, with uh, correction. We won't read that one. You can look at it later. Number two, reason number two, trouble may cause us to have a greater dependency upon God. Trouble may cause us to have a greater dependency upon God. Now, the reference that we're looking at here is the passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And you remember that this is a story about the Apostle Paul. 
Now, Paul somehow was afflicted with a problem. And a lot of people, theologians, think that it could have been an eye problem. It could have been a problem with his eyesight. And it bothered him. And he said it was a a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he cried out to the Lord. He prayed three times to the Lord to remove this, this thorn in the flesh from him. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now you see, the Apostle Paul had been given a tremendous job in the church. He wrote half of our New Testament. God had enlightened him with such revelations that if that had been given to an ordinary individual without these things, he could have been puffed up. He could have been proud of of the enlightenment that he had. He could have been arrogant in his attitude. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Now, have you thought about the problems that have come into your life? That perhaps this is a blessing in disguise. That God is using this to keep you in the place where he can use you. He wants to keep your attitude right. So that you can be the right vessel in his hand to minister to God's people and to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's uh, reason number two, possible reason number two. Number three, trouble may confirm my testimony. Philippians chapter one, verse 12 says, but I would, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have happened have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas have been arrested, thrown in this dirty Philippian jail, tied and chained to to the wall. And what are they doing at midnight? What are they doing? They're singing and praising God. They're doing what this verse teaches us. And as a result of this singing and praising, there was a man there, a jailer, who was responsible for these prisoners. And when he saw that, he thought, I've never seen this before. Never in my life. And as a result, God had been working with this man for some time. He knew he didn't have the answers to life. He didn't have the answers to his problems. And he was searching for truth. And when he witnessed the testimony of Paul and Silas, he said, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. And he, he, he opened the door and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be, to have what you got? And the answer was simple, wasn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, uh, if there's someone here this, this morning and you're a stranger to this idea of knowing the Lord as your Savior and having him as your friend, I want to tell you today that there's no life like that. And we're going to go through this in a little while. You're going to see some of the reasons for that. Now, the fourth reason is this. Trouble will bring us into a deeper maturity and more Christ-likeness. Psalm 119, verse 71, it says this, It was good for me that I've been afflicted. 
Some of you are quoting it with me. You know this verse. I know why you know it. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. You know, sometimes, as people go through these difficult challenges in life, it just draws them closer to the Lord. And without that, you would be a lesser person. And God uses these difficulties to draw you closer to himself. Now, I'm going to talk about a challenge that I had. Last year, July 6th, my wife and I are in the habit of reading the Choice Gleanings calendar. I don't know if you've heard of this calendar before, but I I highly recommend you getting one. It's a daily calendar. And uh, my wife and I, after breakfast, we read the calendar and we have a little prayer together. And last year, this was the calendar reading and it bothered me. And I want to read it to you and you can maybe see what, what was the obvious thing that bothered me. The lovely verses at the beginning of the calendar is anything too hard for the Lord. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Great verses, aren't they? Are you facing an impossible situation? Is there seemingly no solution? Take courage, dear child of God. You have a heavenly father who deals with the impossible all the time. Introduce your problem to your almighty God and it will crumble before him, before his power and might. Remember the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho and Sarah's barren womb? These were all humanly impossible situations. But when confronted with the power of almighty God, the impossible becomes possible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, my problem is this. What planet was this author living on? And I mean that seriously, and I don't mean to be unkind. But when you read something as simplistic as this, where the suggestion is this, is all you have to do is introduce your problem to an almighty God, and it will crumble before him in all of his power. And then in reality, I look at my world around me. I look, at, I look at my life. I look at other people's lives who have had tremendous problems and difficulties and have cried out to God. And their problem, their problem did not crumble. So why is that? I was thinking of a dear friend of ours who we have, been, have met some time ago in eastern Canada. We were ministering the word in, in um, Nova Scotia, and pardon me, it was, it was New Brunswick. We were introduced to a, a young sister who, have, who had six children. The youngest child was, was diagnosed with brain cancer. And as a result, she was in assembly fellowship with her family. And as a result, the husband, he just couldn't take it. And he absconded and left and abandoned her with the children. And here's this young mother of six children 
and the youngest with brain cancer. The prayer meetings were made in the assembly. We appealed to God for healing, that he would use the doctors to, to in their wisdom, to address this situation and pray to God that this, this recovery would happen. And, and, and we did start to see recovery. And Kayla was going into remission. She lost all of her hair and, you know, all of those things that happened. And then they went back for another examination just to see if the tumors were still shrinking. And to the horror of the family, they had come back more aggressively than ever. And within two months, this single mother buried her youngest daughter. How do we understand that? Why is it that God at times intervenes and other times does not? How do you as a Christian understand that, you know, you, you're, you're sitting here, someone's here today, and you're looking at over the audience, and you know other people here, and, you're, and with jealousy, maybe a godly jealousy, you see their families, you see a mom and a dad, and their adult children are with them, and they're serving the Lord and their grandchildren are with them and they're serving the Lord and, and you see how God has blessed them and, and then you look at your own home and you think about your son who at one day was going on for the Lord. Where is he now? Or a daughter. I was thinking of a friend of mine in the UK, a lovely couple, and they had a wayward son, one time who professed to be saved, and they prayed to God that he would be restored to the Lord, and he went on and on in a wild life. And one day, there was a knock at the door, and it was the police officers that had to tell the mom and the dad, that the boy had been killed in a motorcycle accident. Where was God? When they were crying out to God, where was the answer? Where was this problem that just sort of crumbled when you brought it to an almighty God? What happened then? I want you to think for a moment of Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read that book. If you've never read it, you should look at it. But I warn you, you're going to doubt whether you're really saved or not. When you think of a young girl who is tied to a stake, and her tormentors have laid the, the wood underneath her, ready to ignite it and burn her alive unless she denies her faith in Christ. And she, with courage, is able to look in the face of her tormentors and say, no, I will not. And the flames licked her up. Did she not pray for deliverance? And when she delivered, she wasn't. You know, there's a, a nonsense that's preached from a lot of places. A lot of these prosperity gospel preachers say this, you know, that 
There's no such thing as sickness. Sickness is always the result of sin. And, and if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. There's a hidden sin in your life or, or you don't have enough faith and you're not praying hard enough. That's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Coming to grips with suffering. You know, sometimes I think there's a difficulty when it comes to these subjects that our head and our hearts are in two different places. You see, I have given you some reasons for suffering today. I've given you four reasons why biblical suffering takes place. And the theologians here all know that to be true, and we all know that to be true. That's the scriptures, right? We trust the scriptures. We believe that. But do we actually believe it in our hearts? I have a a little quiz I'm going to give you in just a moment, but just to illustrate this idea of having your head and your heart in two different places, it reminds me of a time in in Toronto. We have in Toronto what used to be the world's tallest freestanding structure called the CN Tower. And uh, one time on furlough, um, my wife and I, we went up to the, uh, to the, the, the CN Tower, and uh, it's, it's actually quite an in, in, in interesting, incredible place. And up there, about 1,100 feet in the sky, you're, you're standing there. You get out of the elevator, and they have a section there that is a glass floor. Okay? So you get out of the elevator, and then you can walk towards this area that has this glass floor. And you're way up there. And my head is telling me, all right, Sid, we have standards in Canada. This is Africa. And uh, we know that this was built strongly. We can trust it. And uh, there's wise people. They have rules here, regulations. That has got to hold you. Look at the thickness of that glass. It's, it's got to be all right. And, uh, and that's what my head's telling me. And then I step out there. And you look through the glass and you see those tiny wee cars at the bottom of the road. And you start to, uh, your heart starts to doubt your head. As you go through that challenge, you're challenged that the facts are being challenged by what you see around you. Now, I didn't fall through, obviously. But the, the analogy is this. My head and my heart are sometimes not in agreement. Now, this is the quiz I want to ask you today, and I'm going to ask you to answer this quiz in your heart, and I want you to answer it with your heart, quietly, in your heart, not from your head. And they might be sound like stupid questions, but they're not that stupid. I want you just to think about it. Now, the first thing is this. Is God on the throne? Don't answer it from your head. Answer it from your heart. Do I really believe God is on the throne? Is that really something that I hold on to? Or is that just sort of a theological doctrine I tick off on my list of things I believe? Is God on the throne? Question number two Does God have control? 
You see, it is possible that God is on his throne, but doesn't have control. And some people actually believe that. Uh, For example, the Queen of England is on her throne. But see, she certainly doesn't have control. God is on his throne. But does he have control in your the details of this world? How small a detail is he still in control over? And then the third question. Is God kind? You see, God could be on his throne. He could have control. But he could just be nasty and like to mess with you. And just bring nasty things in your life just to screw you around. And that's what some people think. I remember speaking on this one time and a lady came up to me and she says, you know, I have a problem with that message. And that point she says, that point we said where God is kind. Wouldn't it be more appropriate to say that God is just? I said, no, it wouldn't be. Because if God was just just, you'd be in hell right now. But thank God that he's more than just. He's also kind. And he's provided a way for us to be saved. So God is not just just. He is kind. Could God change this problem if he wanted to? The difficulty you're going through right now, I want you just to think about it. Could God change that problem? Could God change my problem? I have no doubt that God could just simply look without even a a blink of an eye, and I would receive strength in my legs, and I could go racing out that building, and and you know what? There would be about, how many people we got here? 60, 70 people. You'd all be thrilled to see that. And that'd be a great thing. And I'd be happy about that. God could do it. I believe that. But he hasn't. And the last thing is this. Have you asked him to change this? Have you appealed to him have to change this? Now, I want to answer these questions again from the scriptures. And we're going to give you another, uh, just a, a brief moment. I'm going to go through these quick, at least very quickly, and then we're going to make a few more practical applications here. So the first question is this, is God on the throne? And I'm going to read you some verses from the scriptures just to answer this question. I know theologically you're all saying, of course he's on the throne. But do you have a verse for that? I'm going to give you some right now. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a a right scepter. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. God is on his throne. Hmm? No doubt about that. Okay? Does God have control? Genesis chapter 45, verse 7. Some of you know the story, don't you? I'm thinking of of Joseph. You know, his brothers were jealous. And they betrayed their younger brother and they sold him to a slave trader. 
They took his coat of many colors. They killed a goat and spread blood all over it and told a story to, to Jacob. And, and you know, finally, you know the story. The family gets reunited. Joseph reveals himself. He's now the, the, the second most powerful man in the world. He's the prime minister of Egypt. And the world is in a famine. And, and all the world has come to Joseph to get, to get uh, food. And, 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 you know, finally, Jacob dies. And Joseph's brothers, you know what they're thinking? Oh, boy. We're, we're toast now. Joseph has been kind to us only because... Jacob is still alive. And now Jacob is gone. Joseph is going to take us out. He's going to kill us. And we, we, we're, we're toast. And what did, what, did Jacob, what did Joseph say to them when he heard this, that they were thinking this? He says, now, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. He says this, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Hmm? You see, Joseph, in the face of the circumstances that were about him, he could have blamed other people. He could have gone down the guilt trip and, and, and blamed other people. But he didn't because he knew, he believed that God was in control. And even though the circumstances that seemed like they were in the hands of other people, he knew that behind the scenes, God was still in control. Now take that home. Take that home, believer. I want you to understand, regardless of what you're facing, he is on the throne and he does control the circumstances in your life. Is God kind? Matthew chapter 7. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? God wants to bless you. He loves you more than any. Thing you can comprehend. He loves you so much that his own blessed son died for you. And if he's done that, what more could he hold back? God is kind. Could God change this problem? Absolutely. I won't even read that. Have you asked him to change this problem? You know, First John chapter 5, I'll just read that to you. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. So, if he is on the throne, and he has control, and he is kind, and he could change this, and has been petitioned to change this, and does not, what is the conclusion that I am forced to make? What conclusion can you come to? Really, there is only one. 
it is God's will and plan for me this time to go through this painful thing. Now you see, once a believer reaches that point in his life, a miracle actually does take place. And it's not the miracle that a lot of us have been expecting. It's, it's a different miracle. You know, when I was thinking, um, well, here, when this is realized, a miracle does take place, I was thinking of, of, of um, my dear friend in New Brunswick. You know, the mother, Kayla's mother, in spite of such tremendous problems that she went through alone, there was something about her that just radiated a saintly characteristic. She just oozed from her the peace of God as she went through these difficulties. That, that was a miracle right there. The fact that Kayla was not healed, that was a miracle we prayed for, but that never happened. But there was another miracle that took place. You think of that young lady tied to the stake and, and about ready to be burned. That's a miracle when you think about it. How many of us would have looked for the easy way out? But the miracle was not that, she was, that the flames were somehow put out. The miracle was that she had the faith to stand in the face of imminent death and, and look to the Lord and, and say, how could I deny him? And she submitted herself to, to this great God. You know, our conclusion is this. We really need to let God be God. Now, I understand a message like this may not help everybody. Maybe there's some people here today and you're thinking, oh, you haven't a clue what I'm going through. And I don't. But I do know this. We need to let God be God. We need to trust him. It will make perfect sense one day. Look at the life of Job. See what he went through in those first couple of chapters. And, uh, you know, we just won't. You think you have to go right through the end of the book. And you see, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. I remember one day when we first were diagnosed with TB meningitis after serving the Lord. We were on the field for six months in Botswana. I came down with this illness. We were paralyzed, and uh, after a number of weeks in a hospital in Johannesburg and then another seven weeks at a hospital in Mississauga General Hospital, they, were, they put me in a special rehab hospital in Toronto called Lynnhurst Rehabilitation Center. It was a hospital that was dedicated to those who had spinal cord patients, spinal cord injuries. My first day there, um, um, after my entrance, I, was, uh, I had to go for lunch in the lunch room where everyone else was. And everybody was in a wheelchair. In the dining hall, the tables were all set out, no chairs, because everyone is in a wheelchair. And uh, I was one of the last ones in. And uh, they had a salad bar at the front, and you sort of wheeled by and got your food, and then you wheeled off to your table where you were going to sit. So I was the last one there, and I got my food, and I turned around, and I looked at the dining hall. 
So all these tables filled with people with serious injuries and sitting in wheelchairs. And there was a one table near the front with a big black guy on the end. And I uh, thought, you know what? I went to Africa to preach to Africans. Here's an African. And I sat at the other end of the table, put my plate down. I bowed my head and gave thanks for the food. And as I looked up, he was staring at me. He says, it's a long time I've seen anyone give thanks, for God, thanks to God for their food around here. How are you, brother? Turns out that this guy was a, a guy from the, from the islands. He was a contractor, had fallen off a roof and broke his back. He was linked to the assemblies in the islands. Okay? Now I go wheeling in, and here's this guy, and both of us are in wheelchairs. And uh, he says, You know what? We need to have gospel meetings in here. He said, Look at all these people in wheelchairs. I said, yes, brother, let's do that. So we found that there was a chapel in the hospital that had never been used. And, and we, we put up some posters and, 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 we, and we, we invited people to come and listen to the Bible. And you know what? There's not too many people that go through a serious spinal cord injury and they're not thinking about God. And their minds are starting to think, why did God allow this to happen to me? That's usually the first thing that comes into their minds. So we put these posters. Who better to preach to these people than another guy in a wheelchair, right? So these people started coming in. Some were paraplegics. Some were partial paraplegics. Some were quadriplegics. Some were really, really bad. And some of these folks were coming in. We packed that little chapel out. Never a thing had been used like that. And we continued for three months preaching. I don't know what was going on in people's minds. But my last day there, I was about to be discharged. We had our last gospel meeting there. And at the back of the chapel was this beautiful vase. Huge, huge vase. With a dried flower arrangement. Now, one of the men who had been coming was a Portuguese Roman Catholic man, a quadriplegic. And on the brass plate that was hanging by a gold chain in front of that uh, vase, he had written words something like this. God, I thank you that you made me a quadriplegic so that I could come to know you. See, God has a purpose. He has a plan. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to tell you a verse that that Christians cherish. And you can't cherish it because you don't believe in this. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and most of you here have it memorized, don't you? And we know. How's it go? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. My friend, this morning, God is calling you. He wants to waken you up. And if you're going through challenges in your life today and you're not a believer, God is using these things to waken you up. 
I want you. I sent my son to die for you. What more do I have to do to get your attention? My friend, God loves you. May the Lord encourage us today as we come to grips with suffering. May the Lord use these things for his glory. Shall we pray? Father, we quieten our hearts in your presence this morning just to thank you again for your ways. They're hard to figure out. They're hard to understand. And we may never know all the details on this side of death. But we're thankful that there will come a day and all the questions will be answered. We look to you, Father, for your blessing upon this assembly here today at Boulevard. We thank you for these believers. And we pray that you would richly encourage them from your word. Use these feeble thoughts this morning to give them the strength to carry on. We thank you for your love and look to you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.